Meet Lucy. She was experiencing a lot of different symptoms. And what was interesting about her case is that these symptoms went back and forth. She felt sped up. She often felt hot, had heart palpitations, and had anxiety most of the time. But then she would have a period of fatigue followed by more being sped up and feeling hot and having anxiety. Lucy went to see her doctor, and from first glance at looking at her blood work, her doctor told her that her thyroid was hyper, or fast, and tested her for Graves' disease. But was her thyroid really hyper? There are a lot of intricacies when it comes to assessing thyroid hormones, and I knew that we had much more to explore to solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of the different issues that Lucy was experiencing and the up and down she was feeling with her health. So joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. Eric Osansky. He is a chiropractor, a clinical nutritionist, and a certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. Although Dr. Osansky focused on typical chiropractic conditions initially, he gained a much, much greater appreciation for autoimmune thyroid conditions when he was himself diagnosed with autoimmune thyroid condition, Graves' disease, in 2008. Thankfully, he was able to get it in remission, and then he began helping others with Graves' disease and with Hashimoto's as well to restore their health. He is the author of two books, Natural Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves, and also Hashimoto's Triggers, Eliminate Your Thyroid Symptoms by Finding and Removing Your Triggers. Dr. Osansky, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Now, when it comes to thyroid, we look at TSH. That's usually the first place where practitioners are going to start. And TSH is certainly an industry standard, but as you and I both know, and I know a lot of our listeners know as well, testing TSH alone can leave many gaps and really can leave us guessing about what's really going on. So let's just start with what is TSH? Yeah, so TSH stands for thyroid stimulating hormone, and it's a pituitary hormone. It's secreted by the pituitary gland, and it communicates with the thyroid gland. And uh, Hypothalamus communicates with uh, the pituitary in turn. So there's like what's called the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, also the HPA axis, which is hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. But with the since we're focusing on thyroid, again, you got the communication, the hypothalamus communicating with the pituitary gland. And again, that'll communicate with the thyroid gland. And then uh, it depends on the situation with uh, with hypothyroidism, you know, including Hashimoto's, people tend to have an elevated TSH. And the reason for that is because thyroid hormone is on the lower side. It might be overtly low. It might be just within the lab range, but not the optimal range. 
But typically what happens is that the pituitary will tell the thyroid gland, we need more thyroid hormone. So it'll increase that TSH kind of as a signal to the thyroid gland, you know, to go ahead and produce more thyroid hormone. And then with hyperthyroidism, it's the exact opposite. With hyperthyroidism, you have too much thyroid hormone in the bloodstream bound to proteins. And so it will signal to the thyroid gland, pituitary gland will signal to the thyroid gland okay, we need to stop that production. So we don't want any TSH. So that, that's why commonly with hyperthyroidism, especially Graves' disease, not only will you see low TSH, but many times you'll see an undetectable TSH because that thyroid hormone is so high. And so it's really trying to stop that production of thyroid hormone with that signaling. And again, that's why you see low TSH and hyper. And again, that elevated TSH, very common in hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's. Yeah. And with TSH, we have all these amazing feedback loops, as you're saying. And so depending on what the hormones are doing, it feeds back to the pituitary. However, that even though we have this feedback and we have the signaling, there's more that happens after that. So if someone has a low TSH, can you just by that say, oh, well, they must have hyperthyroidism or if someone has a high TSH, can we just say they have hypo or is there more that we want to explore? Well, I mean, both of us know we definitely don't want to just look at the TSH. We want to look at the thyroid hormones. So we want to look at you know, definitely the free hormones is what I look at, free T3, free T4. I mean, it's a little bit different, I think, with hypothyroidism and hyper because hyper, and, and maybe we'll differ in opinion here, but with hyper, I think just looking at the free hormones are okay because typically if the free hormones are elevated, the the total hormones will be elevated as well, especially with like condition with Graves, with hypothyroidism. I know some practitioners want to not only look at the free hormone, but total to kind of look at the production, just because most of the thyroid hormone is actually bound to a protein and not in the free state. So depending on the practitioner, you know, some might just get, but either way, you want to look at the thyroid hormones. Some will do just free T3, free T4. Conventional medical doctors, as you know, a lot of times they'll just do like a total T4, not even look at the T3 and not even the free T4. But there's reverse T3. Reverse T3, I don't know if you want to talk about that, how much detail you want to talk about that, which is the, you know, an active form. So you have free T3, which is the active form of T3. Some of it's produced by the thyroid, but you have the conversion of T4 to T3, and that's how most of the T3 is produced. Reverse T3 is the inactive form of T4. And again, there's some controversy over the function of reverse T3. Uh, some suspect that it's blocking, like has a blocking action. And, you know, it does make sense, especially in hyperthyroidism, just because hyperthyroidism, you get elevated, pretty much everybody has elevated reverse T3. So it would make sense, hey, you know, we're trying to block, again, block that production of free T3. And uh, antibodies we want to look at as well. Um, and again, I don't know how much detail, so I'll let you lead the way. But I, one, one more thing I will say is that also it could be a pituitary problem too. So that's why you don't always want to just focus on the thyroid. I mean, remember TSH is pituitary. So if you just make assumptions based on the TSH that it's a thyroid problem, again, most of the time it is, but there could be other issues going on as well. There could be like a pituitary adenoma or something like that. So you definitely want to get a complete picture of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. And it's just so important for people to know that 
you know, TSH isn't the only thing we look at. And of course, we talk about this all the time. But yet, you know, when people go to their practitioner who may be more conventional, they'll say, oh, your TSH is high. You need this or your TSH is low. So what was interesting that was happening with Lucy, and I know is happening to a lot of people as well, is when she went to see her doctor, she was experiencing palpitations, anxiety, she was sweating a lot, and she went to her doctor and her TSH was extremely low. So the first thing they said to her is you have hyperthyroidism. We need to figure out, you know, what's going on and get you on medicine to start to suppress your thyroid essentially. And that was the first thing that she got. And when she came to see me and we tested, her TSH was actually high. So when she went to a doctor was low, then it was high and she was extremely confused. And so I started to explain to her about this TSH fluctuation and what goes on. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, if someone has true hyperthyroidism or a fast thyroid, do we typically see the TSH fluctuate up and down? Not so much. I mean, usually when someone has overt hyperthyroidism, whether it's due to Graves disease or subacute thyroiditis, Pretty much, I don't want to say 100% of the time because there's always exceptions, but usually that TSH, if you were to test it, you know, like different times throughout the day, different times throughout the same week, you would almost always see that depressed. So in hyperthyroidism, that's usually not the case. Not to say you can never see fluctuations, but in, in most, most cases with Graves, not only will it be, again, depressed, but usually it'll be undetectable. So what about when TSH is fluctuating? What are some of the things that this can be due to? Yeah, I mean, it could be, that's a, a good question. And um Hashi toxicosis is is one possibility. Let's talk about that because um, that was one of the part of Lucy's issue, and I find that a lot of people don't realize what this is, and they get very confused when they see that. So, can you explain to everyone what that is? Hashi toxicosis is essentially Hashimoto's with transient flares of hyperthyroidism. When you have Hashimoto's, you have damage to the thyroid gland, which causes thyroid hormone to rush into the bloodstream. And when you do a blood test, that will present as hyperthyroidism. But unlike Graves' disease, with Graves' disease, you have TSH receptor antibodies that are actually binding to the TSH receptor, and that process is not stopping, which is why you could test multiple times, and you'll see that depressed TSH. With Hashimoto's, you might get a flare, a tr that transient flare resulting in hyperthyroidism, but then maybe a few hours or a few days later, everybody's different. So some, some cases will last longer than others, but yeah, it wouldn't be uncommon to do a blood test and see a low TSH associate, associated with that transient flare, that transient hyperthyroid state. And then maybe the next time do a blood test and the person now is in more of a hypothyroid state due to the damage that's taken place to the thyroid gland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these Hashimoto's flares, you know, I think what's so interesting is that they come more often in some people and less often in others. So there are some people who can flare, especially if they're very inflamed, sometimes even once a month, right? Like it could be due to their menstrual cycle for women or other stressors, you know, and some people, I personally had two flares and there were post stressful events, one post a move and one's postpartum and hormonal changes, you know, can make such a big difference there. So, you know, for someone who has flares all the time, it might be something that they recognize and they're like, oh yeah, that's what it is. This happens. But if it happens once in a while, which is I think probably more common, I remember the first time it happened to me, 
I didn't know what was going on. This was about 20 years ago. And interestingly, it was very similar to Lucy's case where I went to the doctor and they tested during a flare and everything was high. And it wasn't just my TSH was low. All my thyroid hormones were high, which I've never seen before. And that doctor said, okay, well, we might need to take your thyroid out. And I was like, okay, hold on a second. <laughs> Let me just, um, you know, I didn't know obviously all the things that I know now. However, you know, I knew enough to say, hold on, <laughs> I have Hashimoto's. Um, do you know that, um, you know, there's something else that could be going on, but it's very scary when you not only feel the symptoms of the hyper, but then you see those numbers and, you know, then you're told, oh, you might have to take your thyroid out. And sometimes people may possibly rush into something before really seeing what's going on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm sure there have been cases like with you, you knew better, but unfortunately there are people who I'm sure had Hashitoxicosis and then ended up getting radioactive iodine on thyroid surgery just because their doctor jumped to the conclusion that they have Graves' disease. And the thing is, you would think that most endocrinologists know what antibodies to measure, but there are some endocrinologists who will just, and I've seen this, where like someone gets a thyroid panel and they get the thyroid peroxidase and anti-thyroid globulin antibodies and one or both of those are elevated and they're diagnosed with Graves, even though the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins have been tested. I'm not saying it's common, but it does happen. Wow. There are, I'm sure there are some cases where people have mistakenly received, again, surgery or radioactive iodine because the doctor concluded it was Graves' disease. So yeah, it's scary. And just for everyone listening to make sure that everyone's on the same page, can you go over the three different antibodies for everyone and what each of them is and what, you know, if that's elevated, what that would be diagnosed as? Because there's, like you said, still confusion. Sure. So the most common antibody is thyroid peroxidase antibodies, also known as TPO antibodies, more common in Hashimoto's, but actually a lot of people with Graves have them too. The research shows anywhere, anywhere between 60 and 80% of people with Graves have them. I think it's like closer to 90% with Hashimoto's. And so thyroid peroxidase is an enzyme that's important for the production of thyroid hormone. And so when you have those antibodies, now the antibodies aren't the one actually doing damage. It's the immune system itself doing damage to the thyroid gland, and really depends on the part of the thyroid gland it's affecting. So we have also anti-thyroid globulin antibodies, and thyroid globulin is a protein of the thyroid gland. So when you, and those are closely associated with Hashimoto's. So if someone has elevated TSH and the presence of those thyroid globulin antibodies and or the thyroid peroxidase, those TPO antibodies, then that's typically diagnostic of Hashimoto's. Again, it involves damage, the immune system damaging the thyroid gland. Now, Graves involves what's called TSH receptor antibodies. And the most common TSH receptor antibody is the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins. There actually are thyroid blocking antibodies too. So there's actually a fourth antibody, but it's not commonly tested. But those TSI or thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins will bind to the TSH receptor, stimulating thyroid hormone production. And so those are what's associated with Graves. And so if someone has depressed TSH by itself, it doesn't mean a whole lot. If they have depressed TSH and elevated thyroid hormone levels, that's diagnostic of hyperthyroidism. But again, that could be Hashitoxicosis, as we just said. It could be transient. But if they have depressed TSH, elevated thyroid hormones in the presence of thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, then that's typically diagnostic of Graves' disease. 
And we could definitely talk about people having all three antibodies or two, you know, there are people that could have both Graves and Hashimoto's as well. Yeah. And that's a lot more common than I think people realize. Now, one of the things that you said was people with Graves disease who have elevated TSI antibodies often also have the TPO antibodies. I think you said it was 60% or so, right? So does that mean that they would be considered having both Graves and Hashimoto's or not necessarily? What do you think? Yeah, it's a little bit of a gray area. I mean, if someone has the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins and the thyroglobulin antibodies, then I would consider them having the antibodies for both Graves and Hashimoto's. Thyroid peroxidase, I mean, it is more damaging. Again, it's not directly doing damage, but when you have it, that means there's damage to the thyroid gland. And so we could say that it's more of a Hashimoto's antibody, but again, 60 to 80% of those with Graves have it as well. So it's a little bit trickier, but yeah, I would, I mean, regardless of the diagnosis, if someone has, let's say TSI, elevated TSI and elevated TPO antibodies, and they're in a hyperthyroid state, what they need to realize is over time, they can become hypothyroid. Um, again, it's not the same as Hashi toxicosis. It's not necessarily transient hyperthyroidism, but what's happening is they have hyperthyroidism. And over time, the immune system is damaging the thyroid gland, and then eventually they beca- can become hypothyroid. So yeah, as far as a diagnosis, it really depends on the practitioner. I, I don't, I personally can't diagnose and say someone has Graves or Hashimoto's. Mo- most people who see me, they already have been diagnosed. But if someone has antibodies for both, I mean, if someone has, typically I will say, yeah, you have the Graves antibodies and you have TPO antibodies, which are more closely associated with Hashimoto's and more damaging. If they have all three, then I definitely will say you have both the antibodies for Graves and Hashimoto's because the thyroglobulin ones, again, I don't know your perspective on that, but again, thyroglobulin antibodies, there's no question that's associated um, more so with Hashimoto's. And again, so are those TPO antibodies. But yeah, the, like I said, the research studies, some of them say up to 80% of people with Graves have those TPO antibodies. Now, when I, I dealt with Graves personally, I did not have either TPO or antithyroglobulin antibodies. So I was one of the few who just had the elevated thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins. Um, but yeah, hope, hopefully that wasn't confusing at all. Yeah, no, I got to. I mean, I think the bigger picture too, and the point that I know we both try to drive home here is that it's not the thyroid's fault, right? Whether it's Graves or Hashimoto's, it's the immune system that gets confused and attacks. It just attacks because of different antibodies and different type of kind of how the antibodies bind, right? But in terms of the actual triggers or, you know, the things that can actually cause that immune confusion, so things that create that immune system to attack, they might actually even have similarities, right? From Graves and Hashimoto's. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, So you you mentioned one of my books was Hashimoto's Triggers and I could easily have crossed the name and and changed it to Graves Disease Triggers and not everything would be the same, but definitely there's overlap. I would say about, you know, 80, 85% of the, I mean, really you could say just about all the triggers that could, you know, th- the factors that could trigger Hashimoto's can trigger Graves. Now we could say maybe some factors are more common triggers in Graves and Hashimoto's and vice versa. But yeah, there's no question that there's overlap. And it's so important to look at some of, you know, look at as many as we possibly can, right, to help to stop that attack. Now, if someone has 
a low TSH, like Lucy, and you know high hormones, and we don't know, let's say, that it's transient yet. They have one number so far. Of course, it's going to be important to test again, you know, just to see and look at the antibodies. But if it is not Graves, let's just say that someone has no TSI antibodies, but they have the low TSH and the high hormones, what else can cause this? So if they haven't had the antibodies tested or if they did and they're negative? They tested the antibodies and they're negative. TSI is negative. What else can cause the hyper symptoms and the hyper uh, look in the labs? So one thing that can cause it, there's also subacute thyroiditis. With subacute thyroiditis, it's usually viral induced. So someone will get a virus, whether it's uh, like cytomegalovirus or, or more recently COVID could affect the thyroid and cause a lot of inflammation resulting in um, excess thyroid hormone production. And again, the presentation looks similar to Graves, except the antibodies are negative. And with that, usually within a few months, sometimes quicker, sometimes a few weeks, but typically two to four months, the person will shift from hyper to hypo. And most of the times the hypo is transient. So eventually they'll become euthyroid, normal thyroid hormones. Got it. What about nodules? Yeah. So nodules also could potentially lead to hyperthyroidism. There's a condition, toxic multinodule goiter, which is, as the name implies, uh, multiple nodules in the presence of a, a goiter, which is a swelling of the thyroid gland. So the goiter itself isn't causing a hyperthyroidism, but the nodules toxo. So multinodule goiter is just multiple nodules in presence of a goiter. The toxic means that it, there's hyperthyroidism associated. And you know the, the, sometimes the nodules themselves can cause the secretion of thyroid hormone um, other times, they're just someone has hyperthyroidism due to another cause. Like they might have Graves' disease, but also have nodules, and the nodules are not playing a role in the production of hyperthyroidism. But yeah, that could be another cause of hyperthyroidism as well. Just um, in some cases, having thyroid nodules. Mm -hmm. Can nodules ever create hypo? Good question. As far as I know, as far as I guess my experience, uh, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. I don't think typically the nodules itself will cause hypo, that will cause like low thyroid hormone. Again, definitely high, most of the time, as far as my experience, it usually is causing either high thyroid hormone or most of the cases, which is probably what you see too, it's not causing any hyper or hypothyroidism. But I don't think the thyroid hormone itself can actually cause lower thyroid hormone. I don't know if you've seen that, if you've seen nodules. Yeah, I have. I haven't really, and I definitely see nodules secrete um, hormone for hyper. I haven't seen with hypo, but I wonder if someone has a very, very, very large nodule, could it somehow affect production of hormones because it's so large? It's probably pretty rare, but I'm not sure about that. I don't think I've seen it. If I did, I don't remember, but... Yeah, again, even usually with the high, even when someone has like a larger nodule, like two centimeters or greater, for example, I mean, even in those cases, usually they're not toxic. Usually they're not hyper. Usually the person is, is euthyroid. But in, I mean, I will say this, actually, there are also some cases with nodules where they're not toxic, but they will affect the TSH where you'll see sometimes like with regular multi-nodule goiter, 
kind of ties into the question, like what might cause lower TSH where thyroid hormone is normal, like subclinical hyperthyroidism. That's that would, and sometimes you could have nodules which will affect the TSH, and will you'll see that depressed TSH with multi-nodule goiter, um, but thyroid hormone levels will look perfectly normal. So I, you know, can it cause like the opposite, like where you see elevated TSH and you have, um, and yeah, I guess you could say that, but is it is it related to the nodule itself and right or is it just subclinical hypothyroidism exactly. right yeah. yeah yeah and that's because lab ranges are also wide right what's considered high what's considered low right i mean we in the more functional space like to see tsh you know within a, a more optimal range versus the 0.5 to 5.0 that we see on labs you know and if someone is at like a 4.5 and they say you're fine Meanwhile, their hormones might be normal, but low normal, something's definitely happening. Um, but depending on the practitioner that they see, they may not be informed. You know, I mean, it's sometimes hard to actually diagnose someone because it's not above the lab's range, but at least they could be mindful of, hey, it's going in that way. You've got to look at it or there are some things that you can do. Exactly. Now, speaking of nodules, this is a question that I get all the time. And I'm curious your thoughts on this. We know that, you know, 50% of people over 50, you know, have nodules, 60% of people over 60 have nodules and so on. I mean, I, at least that's how I've been taught. So they do, they are more common, right, as we get older. But what people are asking is, you know, is there anything that we can do to shrink the nodules, right, or to prevent them from getting bigger or just to prevent us from having them at all? Yeah, there there are causes. I mean, there's really causes for everything. Um, nodules could be a little bit tricky, but according to the literature, some of the common causes include problems with estrogen metabolism. And when I say that, I'm sure many of your listeners understand, but some of them might not understand. Might, some might say, well, you know, I'm in postmenopause and so my estrogen levels are low, but I'm talking about not the levels of estrogen, but how the body metabolizes or detoxifies your estrogen. And there's and same thing with like uterine fibroids, really, I don't want to say any type of growth, but different growths like fibroids, even cancer could be, of course, estrogen dependent, but same thing with nodules. So that's one, someone could like do like a dried urine test, like the Dutch test and look at the estrogen metabolites, uh, insulin resistance. Also, there's some evidence in some cases that could cause growth of thyroid nodules, also even be a factor with a goiter. And so that's that could easily be looked at, you know, looking at things like hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin, for example, um, a controversial one, iodine. So iodine deficiency could cause nodules, but also taking iodine sometimes could worsen nodules. So the research is conflicting. So it could be either way. And, you know, there's not an amazing way to test iodine. I would say if you're going to choose one, urinary is probably better than like blood testing, but there's still controversy over that. And so, yeah, so those are some of the, the more common potential causes and things you could address. I mean, there are people that use like castor oil packs um, I can't say I have a lot of experience with them, but there are some people that swear, well, you know, swear by castor oil packs would helping with nodules, nothing really in the literature about that. But, you know, to me, it's like, let's address the, the cause of the problem. And of course, the only way really to know in most cases is to do a follow-up ultrasound and see if they have decreased. And I mean, it depends if someone has a smaller nodule, 
you know, they might not want to bother with that or the, they might have a difficult time getting it because the nodule is smaller. But if someone has a larger thyroid nodule, that's let's say a centimeter or greater or definitely like two centimeters or greater, and they don't want to do a biopsy, you don't, you know, they just want to monitor it. I think it's fair. Again, I can't give specific recommendations, but again, for me, I'd have no problem like trying to address the cause of the nodule and then do a follow-up ultrasound six months later and see, you know, if the nodules have decreased in size. And if it's great, and if it did, great, then I would continue doing what I'm doing. If it didn't, then yeah, maybe I would look into other other factors. But again, there are some cases where I feel like I'm doing everything and the nodules, like someone will do a follow-up ultrasound. And it won't decrease. And I certainly have seen the opposite where people have done a file nodule and it'll decrease. Sometimes they'll go away completely. Again, it's unpredictable, but most people are happy as long as they're not getting worse and you know, definitely happy if they're decreased, if they're significantly decreased in size. Sometimes also, and this happened to me, I have lots of different things that have happened to me over the years, but depending on who reads the report, I was told that I had a nodule that was 0.9, um, so almost a centimeter. So they said, well, you should get a biopsied. And I went to get it biopsied and they do a biopsy that's under ultrasound. So it's guided. So they see where, and the doctor was doing, you know, he prepped everything and then he was looking in the ultrasound. He was like, I don't see any nodule here. <laughs> and it was, I went soon after, so I don't think it would have disappeared, you know, that quickly. And what he was explaining that because I have Hashimoto's, there's just natural kind of changes in the thyroid itself and the tissue. And it was possible that when I had the ultrasound done, which was a, a couple of weeks prior to the scheduled biopsy, that maybe there was more of like a thyroid flare and it was a very heterogeneous type of tissue and it could have been mistaken for a nodule perhaps um, versus just sort of that more normal Hashimoto's presentation. Yeah, that's possibly. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. So yeah, I mean, it just proves that there's no perfect test out there, and I'm glad they, I'm glad he caught that before he actually did the biopsy or tried to do the yeah. biopsy. It's just trying to say, where's that nodule? Well, well trying to do that biopsy. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, but I think so many people are told, you know, once you have a nodule, there's nothing you can do, and and certainly, I don't think that neither you or I advertise that. Oh, we can shrink your nodules, right? Because that's not something that people specifically, you know, in the medical literature, like it doesn't show that much, but I just anecdotally speaking have seen that. And it sounds like you have too. So it's just good for people to know that again, not that there's this sure way, but if you're looking at, like you said, estrogen metabolism, I also find just overall toxic load and liver, which of course also goes into estrogen metabolism because it's those specific liver pathways that work on that, on that metabolism, that that's something that could be helpful. Yeah, no, I, I agree. One thing, and maybe you are going to bring this up, but before I forget, and I think it's important for your listeners, since most of your listeners have Hashimoto's, when going back to the thyroid course, the causes of hyperthyroidism, one thing um, I didn't mention, too much thyroid hormone could also cause hyperthyroidism. So I thought it's important to mention that just to, before I forget. And we, I know we're wrapping this up soon, but if someone is taking a real high amount of whether it's levothyroxine or desiccated thyroid hormone, in some cases that can cause too much thyroid hormone. So again, I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget to mention, I almost did forget that. That is a very good point. And a lot of people, um, you know, sort of just assume, but they didn't realize that that could be the case. 
So yes, definitely want to make sure that people look at that. And you know, what's interesting is that most people think about T4 feeding back to the pituitary as kind of how we learn it. But, you know, if someone takes too much T3 and I've had people that come to me and, you know, they have a prescription from their doctor for 50 micrograms of T3, which is a pretty high dose. I mean, not to say that that there's that's not warranted here and there, but, you know, typically we see doses of 5, 10. I personally take 13. I mean, everyone's different, but, you know, there's some people who would take a really high dose, like 15, three times a day, right? Or 23 times a day. So that goes up there and, you know, they it may help some of their symptoms, but that will drive TSH low, even if they're not taking T4. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not just about the T4. If you have like really high free T3 levels, yeah, it definitely will have an impact on TSH as well. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, there are yeah, I mean, I would agree. Most people are not taking that high of a dose, but every practitioner is different. And and again, the patient doesn't know any better, or sometimes they will. It depends. I mean, well, again, I'm sure a lot, a lot of people listen to this. They're well-informed and they would know. But on average, the average person who's not listening to this podcast doesn't know any better, and they'll just take the recommendations of their doctor. And then, yeah, they might get a follow-up test, see that it's hyper. And, you know, in most cases, a doctor would catch on hopefully and say, oh, okay, we need to lower that dose because it's too high. But if the patient sees those results first, he or she might panic and be like, wow, am I now switching to hyperthyroidism, not realizing it's the real high dose of T3. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, we talk a lot about conventional practitioners and how sometimes they're not giving people enough or not finding it early enough. But, you know, there's also this other side too with, you know, certain more integrative practitioners who really feel like, you know, the more um, optimized your thyroid is, the better you will feel. And, you know, there's some people who think, you know, thyroid you know, once that's good, then everything else is going to be good. And, you know, it's about a whole body approach, of course. But I've seen um, more than once where people come to me on a fairly high dose of something like a armor thyroid or a nature thyroid, which is desiccated thyroid, and their TSH is very suppressed. Their T4, T3 are pretty high. And when, you know, I, I ask them, oh, well, that's a high dose. They say, well, yes, my doctor feels that the higher my thyroid, that I'll lose weight more quickly. I'll have more energy. And so they're really going by my symptoms more than my labs. And there is, of course, this drive and this kind of wave where people sometimes say, well, your symptoms matter more than labs. And I do understand that, right, to some degree, but I think, you know, it's probably better to look at both versus just symptoms. Cause sometimes I've seen, unfortunately, people's thyroids really driven up high, 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 and their symptoms haven't improved. But at that point, you know, I think, okay, maybe thyroid is not your issue if you're still tired and your levels are through the roof, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like you said, you want to look at the whole picture and you know, I mean, the symptoms are important, which is why every practitioner, everyone will take a health history of the, the person, the, the patient, the client, and then yeah, you, of course, want to look at the thyroid panel, um, but you're correct. It could be a, an adrenal problem. It could be a nutrient deficiency, like as far as like certain symptoms, fatigue, for example, adrenals. It could be you know, low iron. It could be an infection. So, yeah, you definitely want to, many times you have to go beyond the thyroid. Arguably, most of the time you got to go beyond the thyroid, just like looking at the panel. So you want to keep track of that. But you usually got to look at other things as well. Well, this has been so helpful, Dr. Eric. Now, for people who want to contact you or connect with you, 
how can they do that? Where can they find you? And then you have an amazing podcast that we've swapped podcasts as well. So tell us about that. Yeah, definitely uh, check out my interview with Ina on the Save My Thyroid podcast. And you could either visit SaveMyThyroid.com and click on podcast or just type in Save My Thyroid in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, like uh, like Ina's, like the podcast that you're listening to right now. Then um, another website, so SaveMyThyroid.com is specific to the podcast, but I have my website that's been around since 2010, NaturalEndocrineSolutions.com, hundreds of blog posts, articles on both hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's. And then, Ina, you mentioned my books, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, which now um, just released the third edition. Uh, so that's out. And then Hashimoto's Triggers as well. And um, yeah, I'd say those are the best ways to, to find me. That's great. And you're definitely, especially when it comes to hyper and graze, I always send everyone your way. I'm like, uh, this is not my area. This is Dr. Eric. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, same here. I mean, I'm more known as a hyperthyroid, just because my background with hyperthyroidism. So honestly, most of the people I see in my practice have hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, again, because they resonate with me, just like they resonate with you because you dealt personally with Hashimoto's. And I just think there's a lot less people doing, um, you know, and really being experts like you in hyper and a lot of those people, clients, patients get lost. So I send them your way. (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to staying connected and we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Thanks again, Ina. As you can see, There are several things that can create a hyper or fast thyroid state. And in some, the state is ongoing, whereas in other times, it's more transient. So it is very important to assess this with your doctor so that if you're feeling these symptoms and seeing these results, you know exactly what is going on. In order to get more information on Lucy's case, we did a few rounds of blood work so that we can really track what's happening. I like to keep a spreadsheet and have all of the lab results in the spreadsheet, then it's really easy to see and compare so we don't have to leave through pages and pages of blood work. Her first blood draw was from her doctor originally, and that did show a lower TSH and higher thyroid hormones, which is interpreted as a more hyper or fast thyroid state. However, when we tested it just a few weeks later, her TSH was on the higher side and her thyroid hormones were lower which actually shows a more slower or hypo thyroid state. And not a surprise, during this time when we saw this, she was having that period of feeling more tired. When we looked at her antibodies, she had antibodies for Hashimoto's and she did not have any antibodies for Graves' disease. What was happening with Lucy is that she was in a Hashimoto's flare-up And so that sent her back and forth. And this happens often with flare-ups where hormones actually become high for a specific period of time, and then they become low. This is what I call a fast and furious immune response when things go back and forth like that. And I actually address this a lot and work on this in detail in my Thyroid Mystery Solved Roadmap program. Now, what is important here is to really look in depth into what is creating this immune upregulation and immune confusion, and then calm it. That is the key. So for Lucy, we worked on an immune calming protocol, which I use, and then we started to address her triggers. For Lucy, she had H. pylori, 
She also had SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and she had active EBV, Epstein-Barr virus infection. And this is something that, of course, is going to be slightly different for different people because we don't always all have the same triggers. So it's not the same for everyone and something I work through in my thyroid program as well. Once we address those triggers that we did an H. pylori protocol with a supplement from orthomolecular that I really liked called pyloracil, we used FC-cytal and dysbiocyte from biotics for SIBO, and we did an EBV protocol, which includes lysine, NAC, vitamin C, zinc, selenium, and quercetin. And after doing all this, which took about three months, her immune system really started to calm. And the more that we supported the triggers, the more Lucy noticed more and more balance. Her antibodies dropped and her TSH stabilized. And with all of that, she was no longer getting those up and down swings of feeling really hyper and then feeling tired and then feeling really sweaty and really anxious and then feeling really down. All of that really balanced and it really for her had to do with what was happening with the immune system and how flared it was, which was creating more of these Hashimoto's flare-ups. If this is something that you're experiencing, please be sure that you work with your doctor and look at your test results and track them over a period of a few months so you can see what's happening. And of course, if you need support, I'm always here to support you in my customized roadmap to hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. And if Lucy sounds like someone you know, please be sure to share this episode with them so that they can see all of the different things that they can do to support their health. And as always, please be sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. And remember, when it comes to your health issues, please, please do not give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.